Hey everyone, welcome to the show. This week's episode is brought to you by Daisy May Hat Co., the custom hat company based in Nashville, Tennessee. They make custom one-of-a-kind hats from wide-brimmed fedoras to cowboy hats. All of their hats are 100% beaver felt, and it's the highest quality hat you can get. They also have the coolest shirts ever. You can use the code BRASS at checkout for 15% off your entire order. Go and check out daisymayhats.com. Embrace the fever. Live the dream. Brought to you by Combat Flip Flops. Bad for running and even worse for fighting. Combat Flip Flops are your ticket to the unarmed forces by providing you with military-inspired quality footwear for men and women. To help support the podcast and in support of women in developing countries, head over to combatflipflops.com and become a part of their unarmed forces today. Be sure to use the code UNITY at checkout and get 25% off. And brought to you by GFDA. Good fucking design advice. The voice in your head and the foot up your ass. GFDA makes prints, drinkware, and apparel for people who want to do their fucking best. Go and use the code UNITY and get 10% off now on anything on their site, including our collaborative product, Fucking Help Somebody. Ryan Hendrickson, welcome to the show, buddy. Yeah, thanks for having me on. It's awesome. Yeah, I'm so excited. I'm going to kind of go on a brief tangent about how I met you. I got to go on a show um, with a great individual and he's got a he's got a podcast that's been out for quite a while now. And um, I'll drop the link in, in the conversation. But you were co-hosting the show and I didn't know that. I didn't know who you were at all. And then I kind of felt horrible because I had this really badass co-host that I did not realize was that badass. And I'm over here having conversations and thinking to myself, who is this guy? And then I started reading about you. And then I realized, oh yeah, you're the real deal. You're the um, real deal. I don't know about the real deal. I'm a deal, but I don't think it's, it's the real deal. <laughs> <laughs> Why not? Why wouldn't you say you're the real deal, man? You've lived it, you've, <laughs> you've slept it, you breathe it, you, you deal with it daily. I mean, you're the deal, you're the guy. I think I, I think I'm just the uh, the guy that wrote about it. There's a lot of guys that have been in my shoes before. I just happen to write about it. So that's what's uh, wild. You have an incredible book called I believe it's Tip of the Spear, if I'm not incorrect. Yes. Yeah. And um, it kind of goes through your life and 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 your deployments and and what happened and and how you are where you are now. And if you'll allow me, I would love for you to kind of tell everyone a background about who you are and um, and I'll kind of take it from there. Yeah, so um, I actually grew up. So I, I, I was born. I was born in California, which, you know, don't hold that against me. But um, <laughs> but I was, but I was raised in Oregon. So I uh, I claim Oregon as my home. Um, I was raised in a little logging town out there, uh, Lowell, Oregon. And uh, when I, you know, when I turned eighteen, uh, my dad, he basically, you know, he basically said, "Hey, um, you know, you're eighteen years old. Um, it's." yeah, you're getting kicked out of the nest because if I let you stay here, you're going to be pumping gas at the gas station talking about your senior year homecoming game when you got, you know, it's stuff like that. And I understood it, but um, you know, it was, it was pretty much, you can, you can go out and get a job. You can um, go to college, but you know, you're not really college material. So I I wouldn't recommend that, but he had, you know, he's like, Hey, you, you should, you, you know, you're, you're a grown man, you can make your own choice, but you should definitely uh, serve your country for four years. And then once you're done, come back and figure out what you want to do. But, you know, give, you know, give, give this country four years of your life and, um, and then you can make a choice from there. So 
you know, there was a bunch of different recruiters. I, I, I went and saw, um, well, I say a bunch of different ones, like literally four. Cause there's, you know, <laughs> but, uh, yeah, but the, uh, it, it was, it was crazy. The, um, the army in the mid nineties, they didn't, they weren't really looking for anybody. So it was like, yeah, we could, uh, we could get you out in like eight months if, if that's good for you. And now I, you know, I wanted something more immediate in the air force. They just kind of laughed because my test scores, they're like, no, dude, <laughs> you're, no, we're not looking for people like you. That flying um, jets, homie. Yeah. And then the Marines, I mean, the recruiter was so scary. And so I didn't want to join the Marines because he scared me. He like, he's this, this huge dude. And he always had a, a, like an entire, pretty much a whole can of dip in his lip at one time. And whenever he <laughs> talked, he just spit dip everywhere. And I was super scared of them. So I was like, no, nah, I don't want to join the Marines. These guys are scary. And then um, the Navy recruiter, he's, <laughs> the Navy always needs guys. And I mean, this dude, this dude, he just, he just played on the, um, you know, what an 18 year old boy wants. Like you want to, you want to sail around the world and meet exotic women and exotic ports. I'm like, yeah, you know, you want to, you want to be a F-14 Tomcat pilot like Tom Cruise or a Navy SEAL, like Charlie Sheen. I'm like, yeah, of course everybody does. He's like, all right, cool. Sign here as an E1. I was like, all right, man, I'm not going to do any of that stuff except for the ports. A lot, lot of good time. But, um, but yeah, so joined the military and four years turned into eight years, turned into 12 years, turned into whatever four plus 12 is. And then all the way until 22 years. And I'm like, wow, I, uh, so much for just, serving my country for four years and uh and then figuring out what I want to do so um I retired in January 2020 and I'm still trying to figure out what I want to do when I grow up I guess it's wild to me when I hear people in America speak about service the way that you guys do so let me let me let me explain something in Canada we don't have recruiters show up at our high school we don't have recruiters you know hang out in the parking lots like they used to like when GWAP first kind of popped we we don't we never had that you know going through those programs and having people serve it feels like every kind every time i've ever met an american it's either somebody in their immediate family had served or somebody that was their cousin or their uncle or their brother or you know, my dad, someone, someone, everyone, someone's connected to has served the mill in the military in the United States. And obviously the population density, of course, you would expect more in the wars you've been involved in, but it still always blows my mind when I hear people talk about saying, you know, my parents suggested, Hey, I go serve. Hey, I go do this. And to think that that was even, uh, on your guys' radar as much as it was ours is wild. And was it because did your parents serve? Did you have, was your mom and dad? Ah, okay. So my dad served. My mom's not my my mom was out of the picture at a very young age, but um okay. my dad served and um and then my you know my sister and and myself and whatnot. So yeah, it's um I mean we I, I have a photo album full of Hendrickson's that have been in from World War One, you know, all the way up. So yeah, it was it was pretty much gonna happen. There wasn't, you know, it's you he was trying to give me the benefit of the doubt that you know, I was going to choose the military. Um, but I've been, I mean, he just, he pretty much groomed me for the military my entire life, which is, is, you know, it was, it, it was great, but his belief and growing up was, um, give your country four years and then, and then you can, then you can have, 
I don't know, 80 years of taken back from it or whatever, you know, however long you can make it. But that's, that's pretty much his mentality of it. And, and that's, you know, how I was raised. So yeah, it was, it was going to happen. Was your dad Vietnam? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. He did. He did two tours in Vietnam and, um, and then he came back after, you know, doing his four years and, you know, started this logging company or this construction business or whatever. It was, I guess it was back in the day when uh, you could jump around a bunch of different, you know, you can have a logging company and maybe on the side here, you'll, you'll, you'll bake a cake. And then over here, you'll clean out shitters or something. I don't know, but yeah, he had yeah. a ton of different businesses. So he's a handyman by, by, by yeah. all accounts. He had a lot of yeah. things he was able to do, but that's a, uh, what a great way to, what a, I mean, I say a great way to grow up. I mean, I, I didn't grow up in your shoes, but I guess having somebody who had served in such a prominent war, um, I'm sure that couldn't have been easy to see. I'm sure that changed him and, you know, in his ways that he raised you. And so was, was it just your dad then mom wasn't there. So it was just single dad. Yeah, it was just my dad, um, my sister and I, and then my um, two other sisters and older brother, they were with um, previous mom, um, I guess okay. I, I think Connecticut or something like that. It is weird situation, unfortunately, all too common, but it, yeah, <laughs> you know, yeah. Yeah. No, I always ask because it's, it's, I always like to see why people ended up the way they ended up, how they developed, what, what they didn't have, what they did have. Right. Those are always, those are always things I think people overlook. They always start with, Hey, how, how'd you join the military? Well, I'm curious of like, how'd you end up the way you ended up and why you end up joining the military and what, what made you think that was a good choice? <laughs> what made you think joining the army was, or the Navy or the air force or the Marines was a, was a top notch choice. But in America, that's like, that's your bread and butter. That's just how you guys are raised. And it's so different uh, to hear, to hear people, uh, to hear people speak about it the way they do. So you joined when you joined and you signed on the dotted line, you went off to basic and stuff, any regrets right off the bat, or did that take a little while to go? <laughs> Um, so I, yeah, I mean, there, I, I'd never been out of my, you know, my little comfort zone. Yeah. We'd moved around a lot, you know, throughout Oregon and Northern California, cause we were poor, but, um, I'd never been on a plane before. So flying to, uh, Great Lakes was, that was my first time on a plane. Um, there's, there's just all kinds of just stuff, you know, going on from the bus pulling up and, and people, you know, the yelling and screaming and bags flying everywhere. Cause this is mid, you know, this is mid nineties. No, I didn't, I didn't go through in the sixties when they're kicking you and stuff like that, but you know, but, um, but yeah, it's the mid nineties. Uh, it was, it was a little bit more, um, hands-on than it is, I guess today. And a little bit more, um, verbally violent than it is today, which is fine. <laughs> um, you know, which is fine, but yeah, it was a shock because, you know, here I am, I'm, Ryan, you know, Ryan Henriksen, wrestling star. And, and, um, I thought I was a football star, but I wasn't, I sucked really bad, but in my mind, I was a football star and, um, you know, this, this great wrestler and all this other stuff. And it's like, you can't like, wow, this, <laughs> this is a real eye opener. Nobody, uh, outside of my little town of 1300 people, nobody cares. Huh. This right. is very, uh, very weird. So, yeah, it was in, and it did everything my dad wanted it to do. He wanted me to see the real world. He wanted me to meet people from all over the place and to, and to get, you know, um, I guess, get immersed into this. Um, you're not as cool as you think you are grow, you know, it's time to grow up and be a part of something, whatnot. So 
and the Navy, you know, four years in the Navy did all that. And, and then, um, because I actually did, I got out of the military once and, uh, and switched branches, which I did that a couple of times, but yeah. How does that work? And can you walk me through what that looks like? Because I know, I, I think I'm pretty sure in Canada, the only reason you can't join again is if you've been medically released with like some type of, you know, a 3B or something along those lines for like PTS or along those lines, they don't really welcome you back super open-handed. So what is that like when you want to change, when you get out of the U.S. military? Because I've been told stories of like, if you get out, like they, sometimes they don't welcome you back or is it very person dependent? It's no, it's, it's not. Yeah. Those, yeah. Those stories in my parent or my experience, um, are not correct at all. So I, I got up, I got out of the Navy in April, 2001. Um, oh. and I, I didn't realize what September was going to bring. So like I did my did. Four, <laughs> yeah. I did my four years and, you know, got out and now it's, you know, cause I mean, yeah, the Navy was, it was real. It was fun. It just wasn't real fun. Um, and, and, and I like living on a ship is, is not a good time at all. <laughs> it doesn't look like it. Nobody wants to do that. I don't want to be in a metal tin can with a bunch of grown men that are disgusting. Yeah, especially a ship commissioned <laughs> in the 60s. I mean, it just wasn't, you know, and all three of my ships I was on were all commissioned in the 60s and 70s. And it was like, holy cow, man. But, um, but yeah, you know, I learned a lot and I did my four. Now it's time to get out. And then the war kicks off. And well, I didn't think it was going to be a war at the time. I figured that we were going to do, you know, kind of the same reaction to Somalia or whatnot like that. Um, go in launch some tomahawks, kill a bunch of people, and then uh, do this international manhunt for bin Laden and mission complete. Um, I did not realize it was going to turn into what it did. So I actually stayed out until um, late 2002. Oh, and then okay. once once the Iraq thing got on the table, it was like, oh, this is actually, okay, I need to get back in and do my part. So I was married at the time, and the lady I was married to, she was in the army. And I said, Hey, I want to, I want to join the army, um, and go special forces because that's, you know, that's what I wanted to do. My dad, you know, was all about it. Cause that's, that's, um, he was, he was, a helicopter crew chief on medevacs for Mac, Mac V SOG teams in Vietnam. So wow. he's all about it. You know, he was not a green brain himself, but he worked with them his entire, his two tours in Vietnam. Um, <clears throat> But she said, no, I'm, I'm, when I get out of the army, I'm done with the army. I don't want to live near the army. I don't want to live mm-hmm. anything like that. Like the army is not an option. So we agreed upon the air force. So, all right. <laughs> so, I, so I joined the air force and, um, and I had, you know, I had a good job. I was in a, I was an ammo, I was in a, um, ammo troop and we loaded bombs on the aircraft. And well, during the beginning stages of Iraq, uh, this, this job that we thought, oh, it's air force. You won't be gone that much, blah, blah, blah. It's like, oh no, there's a lot of aircraft that need a lot of bombs because we're basically invading the country right now. So I was going all the time. So, uh, long story, I guess a little bit longer, but I'll get to the point. Um, we, I, I did five years in the air force. Uh, we ended up getting in a divorce and I, um, transitioned over. So, I got out of the Navy completely and I was out for two years. Then I came back in and I joined the Air Force. So it was just like a guy off the street, except for I had military experience. 
And then two branches right now under your belt. We got two of them. And then from the Air Force, I did a transfer, a direct service transfer from the Air Force to the Army. Okay. And so once we got divorced, I was like, well, I wanted to be a Green Beret anyways. So I'm going to sign up for the program, transfer over from the Air Force to the Army, because at that time they were allowing service to service transfers. It's called blue to green. Okay. And so I, I transferred over to the army and yeah, then that's where I spent the remainder of my uh, 12 years. It's so. wild. Cause when I, yeah, from the limited time I've spent with you, I could have already told you probably air force and Navy were not for you. <laughs> like I, <laughs> I, gave a shot. I gave a shot. So, Hey, you, you went for it and you put it all out there. That's impressive because I can't say I would have ever, even if, if the option was only Navy, I don't think I would have ever gone Navy, the idea of a ship of uh, water being hit, then having to tread and then the sharks. And then my mind goes and it's, see, I can see I'm already off track. This is why I couldn't go Navy. Um, Air Force yeah. is an interesting one though. I mean, they were carpet bombing. So you guys were busy. Yeah. Yeah. We were definitely busy. Um, my time in the Air Force was, was, was definitely a busy time. And I, I, and I had a, I had a blast. Like my, um, my job as an ammo troop in the Air Force was very, um, it was rewarding. It just wasn't fulfilling. And what I mean by that is I always had that, that question in the back of my mind about being a green beret and, and, and actually getting on the front lines is like, okay, yeah, great. We're putting bombs on aircraft, but I still haven't answered that age old question that men have gone off the war for years and years and years. And the question is, what will I do when someone's trying to kill me? And, and so I, you know, I, I wanted that, that question answered and you know, um, some people watching this may be like, Oh, that just makes no sense at all. It's, but it makes perfect sense. Um, people, people have been going to war for generations, probably since the beginning, because people want to know what it's like. Number one to, uh, what will I do when someone's trying to kill me? How will I act and all this other stuff? And number two, to get that experience, because it's it's one of the most basic human experiences is, is, is killing or, you know, combat. So, well, combat's always been a necessary evil. It feels like when you're talking about, you know, not even just wanting to go and test yourself. It's always been from way, way back in the Roman past, past, past war has always been almost a necessary evil for conquering of any sort of land. It's not like it's, yep. you know, there's no glorification to war here. I think that's the thing people kind of respect when we bring people on and we have these discussions, these really nitty gritty, you know, I've had, um, I've had a really, a good friend of mine on Ige. He's at uh, Harvard. He was a, um, ranger and uh-huh. he's a purple heart guy. And, um, we've had these conversations. He was very blunt and open. He talks very forward about the first time he had to take someone's life. And I think, I think the thing between maybe my listeners and others is they understand there's no glorification to, we're not trying to glorify war here. We're trying to understand why somebody goes and joins. Like there's, there's so much more to deploying and going to another country and serving. It's, it's not that you're necessarily hateful towards those people, or, I mean, you may be, or it's not necessarily that you're actively out for blood to harm someone, but you feel a sense of duty to protect your own country. And that's more than an okay, in my opinion. And I think if we had more people that would be willing to put their lives on the, their life on the line, for example, like people are in Ukraine. I mean, I'll digress here for two seconds. You cannot go into a grocery store where I live without a mask on. Someone will have a panic attack if they see that, but there's a gentleman in the Ukraine right now, 
who picked up an anti-tank mine with a cigarette hanging out of his mouth and moved it to the other side of the road. We're cut from different cloths. It's a different thing. Everyone is going to be different. Everyone's going to be able to handle things differently and also be willing to put their life on in a different capacity. You being one of those people, not necessarily, I don't think you necessarily wanted to go out and kill all of these people like you're some bloodthirsty, hungry individual. I think you truly wanted to go and serve your country. You felt a duty. And I think that's a beautiful thing to acknowledge. So there's, but, but there's a big difference. And, um, and so a lot of people, they will, you know, we, we can use that cloak of, I want to come here and I want to serve my country. And I am here to like green berets. We, you know, de oppress labor, free the oppressed, stuff like that. And I do, there, there is a big part of me that, that I, that, that is why I, continued eight deployments to Afghanistan and whatnot like that, not to mention, you know, my, my love for the Afghan people, but the biggest overwhelming reason. Now, if we were being attacked in America, then I can honestly tell you, yes, this was for defense of my country. 100%. But I would say the over the majority of the people can use that as a very viable reason. Yes, I want to do this to protect the freedoms that I love and defense of my country. Got it. But the majority of the people that are going over there, whether you're Canadian or you're American or you're Brit or anything like Aussie, you're going over there because number one, it's the camaraderie of the brothers in combat. You cannot form a stronger (laughs) brotherhood or I'm sorry, family, sister, brother, whatever, then you can when bullets are flying around and people are getting hit. Don't so worry about any of that. Don't worry about any of that. Listen, I served with, I think there was maybe one or two other women I was around at any given point. If you just say brother, no one will be offended. I promise. I know what you mean. You mean the camaraderie of what it means to be a part of something in the military, to be in a unit where you can look to your left and your right and know that you don't even need to ask. You don't need to say a word, but that person has you, has got you and will do anything for you. I understand what you're saying. Yes, that, but I also, you know, people that have joined the military, it's, or not join the military, but have wanted to go to war, regardless of what country you're from, there is always that overwhelming question mark, how will I react when the bullets start flying? Then once you get a taste of combat, you're you're constantly chasing the dragon. You've had to heard that from other guys, but you're constantly you're constantly chasing the dragon, but that dragon involves the camaraderie when bullets are flying and it's the guy to your left and to the right and then there's that moment in time when you are so selfless that you're like I will do whatever I can including give my life up to make sure the guy to my left and the guy to my right goes home to their family and that's an amazing feeling and so people people continue to chase that and they want to know what that camaraderie feels like they want to know that brotherhood they want to know that wow, we should have died, but we didn't, that feeling. And so, yes, it is for, you know, God and country and the reasons that we can kind of cloak our our, um, decision-making process around. But I would say that the majority of people, wherever you're from, 
that have joined the military to go off to war. I'm not talking about fighting for your country, in your country, but to go off to war. I do believe that it's that question mark that they have to have filled. And yeah, yeah there's that's, aspects my, that's my opinion. No, and I think there's 100%. I think there's an aspect to that. I think at the very beginning of GWAT, when 9-11 went and the years following, at least in Canada, we weren't involved for a minute. We were involved on a UN capacity. So there wasn't that. We didn't have that, like, go serve your country, leave, deploy mentality quite yet. You guys, like 9-11 happened. And I knew people that were like, next day in the offices, like ready to rock. And um, so I think that when I talk about like the God and country, I'm talking about the, maybe the initial, like Mm -hmm. I wanted to join the military because of 9-11 and I'm going to go deploy. And then though, what you get is those individuals who end up getting there deploying, they do a tour and they're on the front lines or they're in any sort of action. That's when the I would agree 100% with you that chasing the dragon feeling, that feeling of being shot at, that feeling of dodging, you know, that you could have died, that feeling of having the people around you. That's when I think that kicks in because I think especially for us here and some of the Brits that I knew, like before, before Afghan, you know, they hadn't even been in the military. Like they, before 9-11, they had been in the military. So Afghan wasn't even on the radar, Iraq. But then once 9-11 happened, the conversation just, it it just changed a generation overnight without even realizing how significant it would be in people's eyes. So you decided you got in, you went, when you deploy, did you deploy in the army initially or did you like just as a, as a service member or when did you go green? Like, how did this all, what are the steps now next to get you to where you were? So after, so I deployed in the air force a couple of times. Um, and then when I transitioned over to the army, I went blue to green. Um, you know, I had to go through the, I think for me, the SF pipeline was 15 months. So I went through 15 months of training. Um, and then, yeah, I got, I got to my, um, to my group, seven special forces group and was assigned to my ODA, my company, and then my ODA. And is like, hey, um, we're we're heading to Afghanistan in like five months. Like, great, perfect. So I didn't have a lot of time. I didn't have a lot of time to wait from graduating the Q course and then, um, you know, heading to Afghanistan to get a lot of those questions answered about, you know, what what's gonna what, what am I gonna do when everything we talked about. So yeah, my 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 transition was was fairly quick, but at the time. Um, all the way up until pretty recently, seventh group was just nonstop in Afghanistan because our, our, our AOR or our area of responsibility is actually South and Central America. Um, So we're all Spanish speakers and everything like that. Cause um, if you're a green beret, then you're, you're bilingual in, in whatever 10th group is. um, Focus French. What's that? So each group, okay, hold on, back me up. Cause I didn't know this. So I'm going to ask you some questions. Now. I'm going to interrupt you. I'm sorry. I'm a horrible host. I am curious. <laughs> I'm curious. So if you're an army ranger, uh, sorry, if you're a green bray, you're mandatory bilingual. Yes, you have to. Yeah. You go through language okay. school for whatever group that you're being assigned to. And, and each group is a different language. Each group is a different part of the world, which correlates with that language. Yeah. So like first group is, is the Orient. So those dudes are 
super nerdy because they're learning like Chinese and, and Thai and all this other stuff. Um, fifth group, uh, fifth group is the stands and whatnot like that. Um, third group, Africa. Um, and, and they switched up quite a bit because when Afghanistan was popping off, all groups would go to Afghanistan, but then you still had to focus on your area of responsibility. So like us, we would do an Afghan deployment, come back for a few months and then head down to South or Central America, do a J set or CNT, and then come back and get ready for <laughs> an Afghan deployment again. So right. yeah, and that's, that's how all the groups are working, but um, yeah, depending on the group that you have is depending on the language that languages that they're going to focus on. So like seventh group is Portuguese, Spanish. Um, yeah, that's, re- yeah, that's really it. But then you can get into first group, which is like um, Tagali, Thai, Mandarin, um, a bunch of other languages that are just extremely hard. And then fifth group, you have, you know, uh, <laughs> Urdu and and um arabic and stuff like yeah so yeah so okay. seventh group was a good fit for me because spanish um thankfully wasn't as uh, they weren't after my test scores they weren't going to put me in like fifth group speaking speaking arabic or something like that and no <laughs> not but that's that's good though right i mean because spanish is by far one of the best ones because i have two questions yeah. so what happens if they want to move you from group to group then do you have to go learn that language mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. So if you want to do a group transfer, which I guess it used to happen all the time back in the day, but it doesn't happen so much more now, but you have to test out on their language through the, uh, the, uh, DLPT. So the defense language proficiency test. I, I think they're still doing that, or maybe they evolved into something different, but, um, yeah, you have to test out on their language. And then every year you have to, um, test. And yep. so you got to score a certain score or else you're non-deployable until you can get your language score up there. So yeah, it's, you have to stay proficient in the language. Um, and, Spanish is yeah. great because you're in America and Spanish is a massive predominant language in, in yeah. certain parts of America. So what a great place to at least be immersed and have to be forced to speak the language rather than speaking Farsi in Idaho. <laughs> yeah, no, I'm definitely... I'm definitely glad that, you know, I got assigned to seventh group. Um, it was my choice, but it was also kind of like, yeah, your yeah, <laughs> Spanish is for you, bud. <laughs> Spanish is for you. This is the good one for you. Yeah. yeah. I love that. Yeah. That's Mandarin, fantastic. Mandarin Chinese, not so much. Yeah. You know, those languages, the thing about the Asian culture languages is there's so much more tonage than they are pronunciation i mean they like the, yeah. the the mouth movements to say like nihama like versus like you saying you know um hola like it's it's a such a different thing and the, yeah. the tone is you say the tone wrong when you're speaking mandarin and you could say something completely just by like the the slightest noise of your mouth and that scares the yeah. hell out of me versus spanish or Portuguese is a difficult one as well. That one's, that one's a fast when they're speaking fast. That's a really hard one to understand as well. But Spanish, I could see being um, a great like entry language into to picking up on. It's kind of like French. It's not too, too far off. It's not horrible. Yeah, um, no, Spanish is good. And, and one of the biggest things I love about Spanish is usually the way it sounds is the way it's spelled. Yeah. Yeah. It's, Mm -hmm. it's honestly, most people I've ever, when, when I got posted uh, to a French unit, 
they mm-hmm. were like, if you can, you know, you can pick up French, you can pick up Spanish. You, they're, yeah. they're very similar in the way that they are um, spelt and the way that they're pronounced. Oh, okay. I'm not incompetent. Mm-hmm. I can do this. Yeah. So, so you go to those groups, you learn those languages, and then where are we at? So as far as me, yeah, I mean, I went to seventh group and um, then we just we just started deploying, you know, right off the bat. But um, uh, it all depends also on your group's rotation. So, you know, when I was like se- seventh group, when they were kind of breaking up the world, yeah, there's a lot going on. Um, the longest civil war that's been um, happening in the world is in Colombia. People don't understand that. And also um, another thing people don't know is uh, Colombia is the most IED country in the world. As another, yeah. Stop. You can't say facts like that and then not stop. Okay, hold on. Yeah. Colombia, like like mm-hmm. like Pablo Escobar, like Colombia, yeah. that's got the most IEDs in the world. Yeah. Why don't we hear about IEDs popping off? Like, like when I think about Afghanistan and I think about driving down Highway 1, I just think about IEDs going out. I just think about everywhere I stepped IEDs, IEDs, IEDs. But I would not have thought Colombia, number one, you don't hear about it at all. Mm-hmm. And number two, I never heard of, uh, the only time I ever heard of explosions or those types of like you know, mass casualties happening were obviously when Pablo Escobar was in charge down there. Why... Why is Colombia the most IED country? Why don't we hear about it? So the war with the FARC, um, it was, I mean, the Colombian government and the FARC have come to a, (laughs) I guess you can call it a a peace treaty or whatnot, even though the FARC is still targeting and whatnot like that. But, um, but yeah, the, uh, the, just, just the, just the drug trade and whatnot like that. And, and it's the booby traps. It's it's those jungle booby traps, and um, it's uh, yeah. It it, it kind of surprised me too. But there's a there, there's a couple um, there's a couple high side um, links or websites that you can go to that kind of give you the the threat demographics around the world. And and yeah, um, from 2000 and I think 16, um, Colombia was the most IED country in the world, and we don't hear about it because. Um, Number one, America's involvement isn't supposed to be that involved, I guess you can say. We're always um, that involved. Come on. <laughs> yeah. Um, and the Colombian, the Colombian military, uh, they are legit. They're extremely good. They're, um, they're, oh, yeah. The Colombians? Oh, yeah. Your face, if I'm sorry, listeners, if you're not watching Ryan's face while he said that, he's deadly serious. He's okay. I have a lot of Colombian. The Colombians are very good. They have some amazing soldiers, and they are. I wasn't in the Vietnam era, obviously, but the Colombians are some of the best in the world in the jungle. Yeah. Well, I mean, it makes sense demographically of being Mm -hmm. of that, but. I would never have heard that is so why can you explain for the listeners? I'm going to back you up here. We're going to sidetrack the FARC. Who are the FARC versus the, the Colombian government? So the FARC, I, I, I'd have to look up exactly what it all stands yeah, yeah. for, like the foreign revolutionary, whatever. Anyways, but it was the insurgent arm in Colombia that wanted to, um, take over the government. So the Colombian government has been fighting a longstanding civil war for 50 some odd years with the FARC. 
and nobody knows about it. Nobody hears about it. Yeah, unless you actually, yeah, unless you actually like look into the drug war and whatnot like that, um, nobody really knows that much about the FARC at all. And they're and the FARC's um, their their allied or um, their alignment with like Cuba and Bolivia and stuff Mm. like that. But it is a it is a huge um, narco terror organization. It was Um, again. There's a peace treaty you know, that was signed a couple of years ago with the Colombian government. But yeah, I mean, the FARC has been a strong arm in Colombia for, well, 50 some odd years. It was the longest standing civil war in the world, was was the war between the Colombian government and the armed faction of the FARC. Yeah. So, and that's no where idea. all the IEDs and booby traps and, oh yeah. Yeah, that makes a little more sense, because when you're saying that there's a war going on, you know, in Colombia, I don't think of of a terrorist organization when you're saying that I'm thinking of the drug cartels versus maybe the the government. But that makes 100 percent more sense. So obviously their military has had plenty of experience, tons of experience and training. So no wonder they're good at what they do. I mean, that makes. Oh, yeah. Yes. I mean, if you look up, if you Google the FARC, um, you will then you will become pretty educated in what is actually, you know, happened in mm. Colombia, but it's, yeah, there's been a lot of bloodshed in Colombia, lots of bloodshed, but nobody hears about it. I knew there had been, again, with the cartels and things like that, but no, like, for what reason would I be, you know, I've been told in Canada that, you know, that there's a massive, you know, civil war going on. I mean, I probably should know that. That's really, that's really, <laughs> really bad I mean, on my part. Yeah. It, but if it's not, if it's not in your face all the time, then there's no, that you know, so back in the '70s and the '80s, the U.S. was more involved in it because we were training up their military and whatnot, like that. It's during you know, it's during all the um, the Contras and whatnot. Um, yeah, I mean, El Salvador, um, Honduras, Colombia, all those countries down there, and it's and it was basically that that yeah, it was a um, it was a, a, a counter narcotics war, but it was a war to stop communism. You know what I mean? So back in that day when communists, you know, you have the 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 rebels and then the communist backed government or the communist backed rebels and the Western backed, you know, all that mm-hmm. stuff. So it's all during that time. But uh, we yeah, I mean, the Colombians, when they when the U.S. got involved and started to, you know, help out with our well, I say help out to make us sound really nice and everything like that, but to influence you know, to put the Western influence in that part of the world to, to, to stop communism and the spread of, of, of drugs, you know, narco-terrorism and stuff like that. Um, the Colombians, they, yeah, they are one of the most predominant militaries, if not the most predominant militaries in South Central America. Like, hands down. I think they're actually, in my opinion, um, they are the best military in South Central America. So, yeah. Wow, and we I had no it. idea. Yeah, and they're a very important geopolitical um, mm-hmm. puzzle piece because of Venezuela. So, right. yeah, that makes that I mean that makes a lot of sense when you pull it all together like that. I sorry, I'm sorry to side tangent you, but I, I can guarantee a lot of my listeners, as we're about to pass by that, we're going to be like, "Tell me about the bombs in Colombia." No, go back. Ask about the bombs. So I'm like, yeah. okay, we're going to ask about some bombs. That's um, just the that's just the Google thing, you know what I mean? I'm 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 spitting facts from the high side, but yeah. that's 
you know, that, that, that's a Google thing. And, 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 and if you actually realistically look at it, has anybody actually gone out and counted every single IED in Afghanistan, every single IED in Colombia, and then went back to figure all the minefields out in Vietnam, Cambodia, Laos? No. no. So I, I think, I think it's more of casualty producing like, oh, wow. So because we do track people that have hit, um, you know, people that have struck IEDs or whatnot like that, whether they're villagers in Colombia or or Vietnam or whatnot like that. And um, and then the it, the um, civilian organizations that go down there and do demining operations. So mm-hmm. but has anybody really, you know, gone down there and is like, aha, there is five million here. Counted them. No. So yeah. how those facts actually come up? I don't know. Yeah. That's, yes, an inter- would, that's interesting, though. I would recommend just watch where you step in some of those places. <laughs> you know, I know there's so many. I see so many of our friends, like we, I say our friends because I say our community, are the veteran first responder community. It seems like a lot of those people are definitely more of an adventurous type. And I, I have a lot of people on Instagram now I'm seeing kind of travel the world in these super sketchy places just to visit. I'm like, homie, you know, you're not supposed to step on that. What you doing? Like, come on, you know better. Train up, kid. Like, come on. Everybody wants that adrenaline rush. It's, it's that, it's that, it's that adrenaline rush of, wow, I survived. I get that. I don't know. (laughs) Is it, is it that worth it though? I mean, I've stepped on an IED and it, it, it was pretty bad. I wouldn't recommend it. It's yeah. I mean, I, I guess if you want to get that experience, go for it. But I, I would, I, I would say the experience, I would rather read about it than actually do it. So looking back. Looking back, yeah. just hearing you talk about it. Now I've done it. You probably don't want to do it. Like so nonchalant <laughs> about it. Like it's as if you stepped on a Lego that morning. Yeah. I mean, they're not comfortable, but you know, I mean, if you no. want to give it a go, it's on you to do homie. So yeah. let's, let's fast forward to that a little bit. You got a picture on the cover of your book and I can't, we were joking around about it and we ah. were just yeah, we were we were having a conversation. Do you wanna do you wanna enlighten the listeners about what we were talking about with that photo? <laughs> yeah, so when I um basically when I was going through the publishing part of the book, the publisher let me in on a little secret, and it was hey, you can control everything in between the covers, but we have to sell books, so you know, cause like the picture I wanted, they were just like, there's just nothing to it. There's, there's no action here. And the name that I wanted, I was like, tip of the spear. That is, everybody says they're a tip of the spear. I didn't want it, but they did. And so, and, and I'm glad, I'm glad we went with it. Like I can now see, um, you know, kind of, kind of why they did what they did, but the picture, <laughs> the picture is, uh, so every regulation that we have in the military that picture is all fucked up. So I'm in a ball <laughs> cap and I got a short sleeve shirt on and we're doing, we're doing combat operations and all this other stuff. And it's like, so absolutely 670-1 non-compliant at all. Okay. Non-compliant. So, yeah. So that, so, you know, but you know, if you have a beard, you're apparently too, too cool for the basics anyways, which is completely wrong. But that that's what that picture screams right there is like, Oh, I'm too good for the basics. Number two we had actually taken down that compound and um, I was, you know, I was heading upstairs because we were getting to move on and I had to shit. 
And so my buddy, I was walking upstairs and he said, Hey dude, flex. I like <laughs> to flex. So I did. And he took that picture. And then I walked upstairs and I took care of business and we went about our day. Um, well, the publisher was like, Hey, send us all the pictures you got and we're going to pick one. It's like, okay, cool. And they picked that fucking picture. And they're like, yeah, it looks like you're waving troops on. And I was like, no, oh, man, no, no, not at all. I mean, I'm waving maybe people away, but no, I just, we're, we're getting ready to roll. And if anyone's been, you know, in, in a deployment situation, you go when you can go, you don't, there's not a perfect time to go take a shit. You're not like, you know what? I'm going to wait because yeah. If something cracks off, you're going to shit yourself. So yep. and I'm always a firm believer. And I tell guys this all the time. I was like, look, before you go out, make sure your guts are clean. Because the worst thing that could happen is you get blown up or shot. You shit yourself. And then a hot nurse has to put her hands all over you. You'll never forget that for as long as you live. So shit you when you have she... to. Yeah, shit when you have to. Because the worst thing you want to do is have to get cleaned up by an attractive nurse when you're blown up. Yeah. And so, yeah. So it's a big thing. Just if it's safe and security is up, the security's number one. You get if the area is secure, take a shit and move on. Well, that's what the picture is. So it's the yeah, it's not. Yeah, it's not as hardcore and badass as you know. I wish it was. I mean, I wish I was. You know waving Waving guys up the stairs and we're we're about ready to go deal death and all this other stuff but no i just i didn't want to get shot with having to take a shit so i was like i'm gonna do that now i just love that you're so honest about that though because i mean at this point you should have just called the book non-compliant you should have just named the dash like the full compliancy code that you've you've completely violated and that and then we could have told that story for the rest of your existence i'm just saying (laughs) I, yeah. think it's, I think it's great. I think it's a great cover. I think the name is great. I understand. But I, again, I'm in a similar position as you. I understand when people make a choice for you to represent your life and you go, I, I don't like it. They're like, no, trust us. This is what we do for a living. You're like, but I don't, I don't like it. And they're like, too bad. Yeah. You already signed. Yep. <laughs> it's a and whole that's, situation. That's pretty much how that went down. Yeah. So. But it's a great. Well, hopefully, it's a, none of them are listening to this because I don't think they know the backstory on that picture. <laughs> I don't think it matters at this point. I mean, now yeah. this it's an icon. It's an iconic photo. It has to be. You almost have to tell the story about the photo now because it just makes it that much better every single yeah. time. Yeah. I'm gonna make a clip just out of that for you. We're gonna have there a clip just of that. You can just send that when people want to know what the cover's about. <laughs> there you go. That's perfect. I love that. So you went. You went on deployment before you were Green Bray. How many deployments had you had done as a, a, an NCO or regular fighting force? Um, so um, in the Navy, I did two, two floats. So I was on a ship for one time, 10 months and one time, 11 months, um, usually in the Persian Gulf, just doing the Northern Southern Watch. And then in the Air Force, I went to Iraq and cutter and then i did a um i did a year um a year I, you can't call it a deployment because it was it was the best year of my life but i did a year in korea and which was absolutely amazing and then um in the army um eight deployments to afghanistan 
um, seven deployments to South Central America. Yeah, so I uh, I spent yeah I spent little little over four years in Afghanistan um, with all the deployments combined, and uh, my very first deployment is when I actually stepped on the IED, which okay. should have ended my career, but. Um, and a smart man would have been like, oh, hey, I figured out what it's like to almost die. Box checked. And I've been in firefights. Okay, box checked. Um, so I have all these boxes checked that, you know, a lot of people join the military for. So this is a this is a young, unbroken man's game. What are you doing? And it's the dragon. And you, <laughs> once you get a taste of combat, it's addicting. And yeah. um yeah. And so I just, um, I, I was able to rehab. I was medically retired from the military. Um, I fought to get back on active duty. Um, and yeah, some, some, some extremely brutal rehab processes. Cause I, I basically, um, I don't know all the medical terms, but I had my leg blown off and reattached. So from stepping, from stepping on the IED. Now my leg was never completely off my body. Like I could hold my leg up and be like, Hey, haha, here it is. Um, which would have been super cool if you could, like you, you can't get that picture. Nobody would have that picture. So I would be the only one that's holding my that leg would be and the picture. Yeah. Smiling and Hey, here's my leg. But, um, but yeah, it's, you know, skin and some muscle tissue. Cause I remember when I, when I stepped on the IED, um, at first I didn't really know what happened. And so I'm trying to, you know, it's, it's like, I just got hit with a, with a baseball bat. Um, and I'm, I'm just, wow. Okay. Let me, <laughs> cause your mind, your mind can't, you can't comprehend stepping on an IED. It's just, again, I don't recommend doing it, but it's not a natural thing. And there may be some listeners that are like, ha, I'm going to prove him wrong. Well, please don't. But anyways, don't. I didn't know what, yeah, I didn't know what happened right off the bat. So I had stepped on this IED um, as we were conducting a clearance operation and the IED was actually in a doorway and, uh, and so, or the breach point or whatever you want to call it. And you can't really call it a doorway. It's a mud hut and it probably had a little blanket over it. Um, I can't quite remember, but the pressure plate was right there. So I hit this IED and smoke, um, dust, dust, oh, the dust everywhere moon dust everywhere and you can't breathe but i couldn't get up i was trying to stand up i couldn't get up i'm getting pissed i'm hyperventilating i don't know what happened i'm not sure like for all i knew we took a recoilless rifle around i have no idea because it didn't hurt were you breaching so I, the, sorry i'm gonna interrupt were you breaching the door were you the first in then yeah because my so my job as a 18 charlie or um the engineer special forces engineer is um also counter ied so we clear the path for the follow-on forces. And um, it was a, it was an uncleared area, but our turp had wandered down to the compound trying to be an Afghan Rambo waving on the other Afghan commanders. Like, because we were getting ready to breach these um, three sets of compounds. And we was like, all right, guys, we practiced this. We trained for this. Uh, we've rehearsed this for excruciating amount of time. We know what to do. All right, go. And the Afghan commandos were like, nope, <laughs> it is way too dangerous. I'm like, well, no shit. It's, that's why we're here. Super dangerous. We've talked about all this. 
all right, guys, go. And they're like, no, not happening. You guys go first. Well, yeah, and this was Texas. I completely agree with you, but this is Afghanistan. So one last time, let's go. No, 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 nobody. No. Okay. So then I was, I turned around to, you know, and we're all noise and light discipline. It's, it's like three in the morning. Um, but I turned around to tell my counterpart, like, Hey man, this, these fucking guys aren't going to move. I don't know why, what, what is going on here? And he grabs me and he goes, Hey, get Nick away from that compound right now. Because if you lose your turp, you can't communicate with your partner force. And at this point in time, we were doing a valley clearance. And so for every 15 Afghans, we only had two Americans. So you had to be able to communicate with your partner force or else what are you going to do? And, um, and so, you know, I, I'm a new guy, brand new guy. If I could go back and, you know, captain hindsight, 2020 is like, aha, I should have cleared the way down to him. Then yes, perfect. But I didn't do that. I was like, Oh crap. And I ran down there trying, you know, not really realizing where I was at. And he was trying to wave these guys down to the first breach point. So I grabbed him and I was like, Hey man, you fucking dumb wrong move, dude. And so I grabbed him and I pulled him away from the breach, but you don't ever want to have like your blind side or, or your, your vulnerable area of your body. Um, I, I, I guess pointed towards the unknown. So like either your side. So if here's the breach point right here, I don't want my side pointed there. Cause all a guy has to do is stick out an AK and you're, you're, you're probably going to die. So we do the plate to the unknown. So I face inside the breach. So my chest plate is there and I cover his movement back to, um, you know, where we were staged at. And then I see something move out of the corner of my eye. And I'm like, oh, hey, this is Ryan and Scooby-Doo, and I have to investigate this. So I see this, <laughs> this something move. So I step inside of the breach point to basically pie around the corner. Maybe I get to kill something early on in this, in this operation. And boom. Yeah. So, so, this, I, so the IED goes off. And I didn't know what had happened. Again, I had no idea because it's not as loud. Like the IED rocked the entire valley. But when you're in the middle of it, it just sounds like a pop. And so and so I'm I'm laying there on the ground and I'm, you know, again, I'm pissed off because I can't get up. I can't figure out why I can't get up, but I can't breathe. So my very first thought is, oh shit, I need to get fresh air or I'm gonna suffocate. Because IEDs have that ammonia smell. Yep. And then you have the moon dust. So the moon dust mixed with all that and you can't breathe. And so I'm sitting there like hyperventilating because I'm scared because something just happened and I have no idea what it was, but it was very powerful and the flash of light was very bright and now I can't breathe and I can't move. So I calm myself down and I'm laying there and I, you know, grab my gun. I'm like, man, why is my gun over here? I was like, okay, what the fuck just happened? Right. And as the dust starts to clear, I looked down and I saw that my boot was pointed at a 90 degree angle to my leg. And I was like, huh, well, that's <laughs> really, that's really weird. Still doesn't hurt. And, but your mind can't comprehend that. Like it doesn't automatically say like, aha, I stepped on an IED. Look at that boot. 
no, no, no. Your mind's like, why is your boot like that, dummy? So I'm like, yeah. did I, like, did I untie my boot or something? So, and again, this is all seconds, but as, that, but as I'm talking about it, it's minutes. But yeah. so all of a sudden, I, you know, I, I see my boot. It's sticking at a 90 degree angle. So again, my inquisitive mind, I'm like, I want to lift my leg up, see what's going on. Right. So I grab behind my knee and I lift my leg up and my boot flops over and sticking out of my pants yeah. are these two like pearly white objects. No. And like bone is so white, it shouldn't even be called white. There's got to be a different color name for it. Maybe there is. Maybe porcelain. Maybe it's it's like a porcelain. It's it's very vivid. It's it's yeah. Weird. Maybe it's, it's like called like teeth. bone or something like that. But it was so white and it's sticking out of my pant legs. And so I'm like, huh. Wonder what that is. <laughs> and then <laughs> as I and then once I start to put, you know, two and two together, yeah. Then the pain hits me. I'm like, oh, oh shit, I just stepped on an IED. And that's when everything went, you know, I guess as uh, as as they say, everything went south. Is once my mind finally caught up with the actions that happened that day, then it was like, oh, here's the, oh God. <laughs> and it just, you know, <laughs> yeah. And then, yeah. And then you do the whole, you know, I, I mean, cause I'm laying there, I'm like, well, how am I supposed to react? And it's like, what movies have I seen? Um, I guess I just say I'm hit. And just start yelling, I'm hit. Like, yeah, that sounds good. That sounds good. But it hurts really bad. It's like, God, man, I don't know how you're supposed to act in this moment. It's like, well, I guess I'm just going to say I'm hit then. Yeah, sounds good. So, yeah, that's that's all I did. I'm hit. I'm hit. (laughs) What the fuck? Most people would be screaming or they would just pass out from the pain and you're sitting there arguing with yourself. What's the best response to this? How should I appropriately <laughs> handle or respond to my leg blowing into pieces in front of me? Nah, I'll just say I'm hit. Yeah, no. I mean, I, I mean, I was, I was, I was yelling it because um, at that moment in time, like where we were staged at was 25 meters back, so I'm a good distance from yeah. anybody that can help me. Oh, and um, and there's something that we all know, um, and I know you know this from Afghanistan is the after the Taliban never put one IED. There's always five or 10 or two or three or seven. There's never one because they play off of our, off of our, um, our oh, everybody. Yeah. They, the, they, you're, they the, play, you're the they, first, you weren't the secondary yeah, they, device. They, they play off of our need to help our fellow man because our fellow person, because we, we value life. Whereas then they, they, they want to, they, they want to have that, that, that glorious death that, um, that kind of, you know, um, makes, makes, makes up for that life. Cause we, we had captured Taliban fighter one time and we just got to talk. It's like, well, how are you, how come you're not scared of death? And he goes, have you seen the way we live? It's horrible. He goes, no, dude. We want that glorious death that gives us, you know, it vindicates our life. Whereas in us, and he and he said he's like, the the reason you guys will never win is because you value life so much that um, there's it's impossible for you guys to 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 beat us. It's like, yeah, that's that's a very good point. Um, but 
it's the truth. And so, and they play off of that. They play off of, uh, of that emotion that I, like my buddy said, I have to go help them. And so the hardest thing for, for us to do is you take that pause because if you start rushing down there because your buddy's screaming and he's bleeding and everything, that's the reason why we call it self-aid and then buddy aid. That self-aid is you have to start getting that tourniquet on yourself. You have to start taking care of yourself because if you outrun your headlights and I've seen it before, I've seen it as we were, as we were sitting up in HLZ to get some of our Afghan um, brothers off the battlefield, guys started hitting secondary IEDs all over the place. And all of a sudden we went from one guy that hit an IED to eight and it was and and one KIA. And so it's like, holy shit, man. But they're very, like, it's very, very effective because now you have your buddy who's down at the bottom, 25 meters away, you know, screaming, help me, help me, help me. And you can't rush to him. It's, it's, it's probably the, it's probably the most, um, what's the word I'm looking for? I think it, I think it is probably the best example of not, I don't know the word I'm looking for. It's like not reacting to a situation. Um, that's like the, the, the hardest, that's the hardest situation you could be put in. A human could be put in to watch and hear someone scream for help and then have to hold and, 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 and do, do the drill properly to make sure that no one else gets killed like that. No other time are we put in those positions where we watch someone suffer on their own. Yeah. It's, it's like the best example of tactical patience that you could ever put a person into because that person that just had to take that tactical pause and clear up to the casualty. I mean, you, you can't tell me that that's not stuck in their mind for the rest of their lives, but we've also seen time and time again, the results of people that rushed to the casualty. And, and the results of that, and they're very effective, extremely effective. And the Taliban did it probably some of the best in the world at playing on those, on, on that human life um, mindset that a lot of us value so much. And so, yeah, the team, they couldn't rush to me. And so I, I'm just, I, I remember I'm laying there and I couldn't get my tourniquet on because, I, you know, a little bit of shock and all that. And I remember looking back and everything now is in this tunnel and I can see people, you know, the, the team is getting security up because number one is always security, 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 number one. But um, as, as you start to collapse back to a point to like, Hey, we got a injured guy and now security's getting back up and um, there's just a lot of movement. Um, I can hear everybody, but it's through this tunnel and I can see everybody, but it's all like, it's all miles away. And, and, and it's crazy. And I, I just remember, I, I was like, damn, I'm going to die here today. Like my team can't get to me because the, uh, I wandered right into a minefield basically. Um, and so, yeah, I, I, I remember looking back and I was like, damn, I'm going to, I'm going to die here today. And all of those emotions, that's a very, like not many people will ever go through that, um, that mindset or that emotion where they're, where they're going to actually, where, where they're going to look back because there's certain factors that have to happen for you to, for you to be able to actually stop 
and know like today's the day that I die. Um, you know, when people are shooting at you, it's very hard to be like, oh, I'm going to die here today because the pain fact, you know, I, and again, I'm not a, I'm not a um, psychiatrist or anything like that, but there has to be blunt force trauma. There has to be a sense, a sense of hopelessness. And then the, and then the um, situation around you has to create the environment to, of, of, wow, I'm, this is it. I'm, I'm not going to make it out of here today. And it was the perfect storm. And I'm glad I was able to experience that, that day, because it is, it, it is an experience that, uh, again, <laughs> I really don't want listeners to misconstrue this, but um, knowing that, that I'm going to die here today, and this is it, it allowed me to take a deep look at myself. And when I did, I realized that I was going to die being a man that I wasn't proud of being a person that I wasn't happy with. And, and so, and I can explain that, you know, fast forward in a little bit, but yeah, that was, uh, <laughs> that was a rough, uh, that's, that, that was a rough go. And it, and it did, it, it really like that, that knowledge of, of this is, this is where I'm going to die. I'm going to, you know, die along the Helmand river in Afghanistan and um, and I'm not really happy with you know how I live my life. That's that's a very powerful and sobering um, slap in the face, I guess. Yeah. I apologize. Uh, your um, <laughs> I'm sorry. Um, no, it's okay. <laughs> I'm sorry. Um, just run to a friend that just wasn't there again. Yeah. To hear you speak about what that feeling was like, um, kind of threw me off a bit. I apologize. Yeah, because being that being that friend, those last moments, um, I I now can say that I know, you know, I know probably what was going through his or her mind. You know what I mean? Because that's that it's the, the, the perfect situation has to be there for it. And a lot of people don't make it through that situation because the injuries are just so severe and the situation is so bad that you can't get to that. Um, you, sure. you just can't get to them. When and you, so, no, I know. I, yeah, <laughs> yeah, I, yeah I, 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 sorry. I, I didn't expect to be thrown like that. No one's ever thrown me that way. Uh, no one spoke about a tactical pause and what that means to sit there and hear that. Um, mm -hmm. And uh, so I'm so sorry, right? No, don't be sorry. It's, um, it's, a, it's a powerful thing. I, it, it, it really is. Thing. It is. And to see you speak so honestly about it that it, uh, you can't help, but um, I don't know my personal experience. I just, uh, I've never, I've never heard someone just speak the way you have about it. So I, uh, I appreciate your vulnerability with that. Uh, Thank you for that. That's um, very lucky to be able to to have this conversation with you about this. Um, puts in puts things into perspective for a lot of people who don't quite understand what it's like when that happens and the chaos that goes on 
mm-hmm. people just hear about people dying of IEDs or a tank getting hit by an IED or we lost another X amount of soldiers to IEDs, but they don't understand the the gruesome reality of what an IED is and what happens when one goes off and what that looks like around you and the chaos um, and uh, the things that you have to do and things that you can't do and things that you, you want to be able to go do, but you, you know, tactical pause. Right. And so um, I won't lie to you that uh, <clears throat> just hit me in a way that I didn't expect. So I do apologize again. Um, I want to, I kind of want to. Don't apologize. It's war. And if people haven't, if people haven't experienced it, then they're not going to know. It's impossible to know. Um, as much as people want to say, like, I understand or, or whatnot, you can't understand when someone is, you know, out of reach. They're, they're begging for their life. There's nothing you can do about it. You have to, you, you, you have to go slow and methodical and they expire. It's, you, you can't, <laughs> I'm sorry, but it's not one of those things. Like I got it. You don't got it. You, you don't, don't understand it. what the fuck I'm talking about. No. And the problem with that is, is because people don't understand. We, most people have to keep that to themselves because all you're going to do is every time you tell that story, you, you, you make yourself extremely vulnerable and you keep and, 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 and you bring yourself back to, you know, in my case, September 12th, 2010. Um, and you relive it and you relive it and you relive it. People have asked me before, they're like, well, I mean, what, how, how come you won't come on our podcast? And I was like, you don't understand the mental toll that it takes on me every time I go through this story again and again and again. I was like, this isn't, yeah, I like to make light and I like to make fun of a lot of things, but that's also an insecurity of mine. Because I coping cover mechanism. up for, yeah, it's a coping mechanism. I cover up for just not, just not breaking completely down because um, that's what it does to you, right. you know? And it's not just me laying there. I've been in this situation where guys are laying there and, and you can't run to them. And we'll talk about that in a, you know, in a minute or however long yeah. you got. I don't know how long you got, but. No, you're good, hon. Keep going, please. Um, I, I want to, so. So they get to you. Mm-hmm. They do finally get to you. What happens next? So um, the Taliban, it, it was very, uh, <laughs> it was a very sobering moment for me because we could hear the Taliban on ICOM chatter and they were whoa, celebrating. Whoa, whoa, I hate that. I fucking hate that. That happened. I hate that. Yeah. They were celebrating, um, you know, their, their, their success, you know, a, we, but you know, they don't, their their numbers are a little misconstrued so we killed 300 americans and it's like i'm looking around like, there's 300 of us here I'm like wow that's... when did we all show up yeah but um and so they're talking about this this great victory and i can hear them laughing in that in that that horrible celebration music that they play over the icon chatter but um but then it got real because they they you know hey the americans they're taking care of you know, of their wounded, we have to ambush them now. And so then our overwatch position, the 50 cal on the overwatch position just starts rocking. And it's like, oh shit, we don't have time to sit here and feel sorry for ourselves. We have to get, you know, the, we have to get the tourniquets tight. We got to get this ace wrapped up and we got to move out now. Um, Because the Taliban, they do another thing very well. They close the gap. And why they do that is because if they close that gap, now all of a sudden 
your indirect fire weapon systems and your air platforms are ineffective because you are either calling in bombs on your position or they're so close that your mortars um, are, they're not gonna be effective. So they try and close the gap as quick as they can. So now it's just a gunfight. And in a gunfight with people that actually live in this area, you can be the most powerful army in the world as we're seeing in Ukraine right now. And if it's, if it's gun on gun, the people that that's their home field advantage usually have the advantage over you. And so, yeah, it was, it, it, it was, we have to get going and we have to get going now. And so um, the helicopters couldn't land where I was at because of the IED threat and the um, RPG, um, you know, threat. So team had to move me back um, three, 400 meters, whatnot. And then helicopter comes, picks me up and I get, a, um, I get evacuated to TK or Taren And that was my first, you know, that was my first um, stop on my, on my, uh, I think, I think it was like eight days I was in Afghanistan. They were trying to stabilize me to get to Germany. Cause usually, usually they like to get you in and out, like, boom, you're injured. All right, here's the first debriefment or whatnot. And then you're on your way to Germany, but they couldn't stabilize me. So it was eight, about eight days, seven or eight days to get to Germany. Um, then I get to Germany and, uh, go through, you know, go through whatever there. I can't remember. I mean, yeah, I don't know. Just whatever happened in Germany. Um, yep. I think I was there for like five days and then um, they got me on a transport plane to uh, Brooks Army Medical Center where um, I requested to go because uh, my buddy um, just a few days before me had lost both of his legs and he was at Brooks Army Medical Center and I wanted to rehab with him but he was in a really, really bad way. Um, but, um, and then my family living in New Mexico, they were able to drive down and see me and everything like that. So, that's good. so yeah. So from flash to bang, I mean, it was like <laughs> quick. Yeah. I, well, getting out of Afghanistan took a while um, mm. just because of the, uh, the blood loss, the infections. Um, yeah. They're, I had this one infection that only comes from human feces. So they're pretty sure they had human feces in the IED and stuff like that. And it was like, wow, that's uh super gross. You know, like you can't just put an IED out here. You got to shit in it too. You jerks. So yeah, I mean, not, not nice, not nice at all. So, yeah. but, um, but yeah, San Antonio. And then that started 28 surgeries to uh, <laughs> reattach the right leg and, and um, rehab. And then I went through a medical retirement. Uh, the army said, you're not fit for full duty. Um, I begged to differ. So I just, just destroyed myself in rehab to get myself back to a point to where it's like, Hey, cause I knew, I knew if I can at least get sent back to seven special forces group, I could weasel my way onto another deployment and the Taliban laughing at me and celebrating me on icon chatter, um, I, I I had to go back. It was something that I, I I couldn't just be like, ah, well, you got me. I I had to go back, and I had to go back to prove to myself, and and then hopefully, <laughs> hopefully to prove the Taliban, like you didn't beat me. You bloodied me up, but you didn't beat me. Right. And um, yeah, through medical retirement and 
fighting back on active duty, weaseling my way back to seventh group. And then surprise, surprise, I end up on a C-17 heading back to Afghanistan in March of 2012. Um, I, I did. And so I get back to Afghanistan, March, 2012, and it was another, another bad year, um, especially for 18 Charlies guys are getting blown up left and right. And they said, Hey, um, yeah, well, you wanted to come back. You want to, you want to get back in the game. All right. You're getting back in the game and you're going to the worst area in 2012 in Afghanistan. I was like, okay, Hellman. They go, Nope. Panjway district, Kandahar province. And I said, where? Yeah. So <laughs> Panjway yeah. district fucking sucks, homie. <laughs> most most IED area in all of Afghanistan. Um, we were doing ramp ceremonies weekly for between Zengabad, Talakan, Belambai, and not to mention, I get in the country, I get to Panjway district, and about a month later, we had the massacre um, where, you know, that infantry soldier went and killed all those civilians. So, and because he wasn't turned over to the Afghan locals so they could hold their own trials on him and whatnot like that, they basically said, okay, Panjway district is a free for all for the Taliban, uh, because obviously you guys are our enemy and they're not. So it, it, I found, I found a lot of IEDs and on my trip back, it was, yeah, it's you, you ever hear that thing like, oh, careful what you wish for. And you're like, shut up, dude. Like, like who, who, who are you, Dr. Phil? Shut up. Well, this was the case of like, hey, careful what you wish for. <laughs> because I, uh, yeah, the most IED area and arguably I know people could, you know, say one way or another. But in my opinion, 2012 was the most dangerous area in Afghanistan was Panjway District, Kandahar province. So yeah, Kandahar is a solid place. And we were there in 09 and mm-hmm. we went into Pandora in 09. Um, and that's when the British were popping off in Helmand and in yep. that area. Yeah, that was a serious concern. They were everywhere. They were constant and everywhere and they're finding them left, right and center. And for whatever reason, I thought it was going to be more Helmand. And they're like, no, this area is this area is a different animal. And so I know exactly what you're speaking of. I'm glad yep. that you came out of that next deployment in one piece considering so many didn't how many times did you end up deploying after your first one back so that was the 2012 trip and then i went back in um 2016 17 18 20 and 21 and i left in july of 21 um during a pretty bad time in afghanistan um but I think everybody knows about July and August of 2021. But um, but yeah, the uh, <laughs> the 16 trip was as a huge eye opener and and for me because I I'd always been chasing the dragon, but in 2016 I actually caught it, and we were sent out on this mission in uh, Boglin Province to um, it was on the other side of the mountains and um, from Pulikumari. And the Taliban, we didn't realize that they had this this huge training camp out there. I'm not sure how the biggest intelligence gathering platforms in the world missed that one, but they did. So we had our commandos and we um, 
you know, we kicked off our mission to go clear the um, Nyazula and a couple other villages from Taliban fighters, you know, just because they were harassing, you know, the ANA and whatnot. And we're like harassing. Okay. You guys are losing five to six guys a night. Yeah. So not really sure what kind of harassing, but yeah, let's, let's go figure this out. So we were infilling in and we were under the ruse that it was all Afghans. Um, so we went in in their vehicles and everything like that. And then once those shots started getting, you know, once the shots started ringing out, then all of a sudden American air power overhead and we kill everybody and, and yay, ticker tape parade down um, the village, you know, <laughs> main street. Well, so we infilled at, um, it was like zero one is when we finally boots on the ground. We went from mounted to dismounted and started moving through. And our first objective was this compound and surrounding it was a very large orchard. And everybody knows orchards are super bad in Afghanistan. That's where they, they booby trap the crap out of them uh, because they usually um, hide their caches and stuff like that in orchards because leafy trees. And they're like, hey, aircraft can't see us, nor can they see our movements in and around the orchard. So, yeah. So my first our first objective and again 18 charlie so i'm up in the front with three other afghans and mine detectors why we clear the route as we're walking for ieds so the main element doesn't get blown up and they don't have to worry about clearing the route so we're always about 15 meters in front of the main element and we get to the outskirts of the orchard and it's like all right hey we're going to clear through the orchard um about 30 meters from the entrance of the main compound and then we'll we'll bring everybody up. All right, great. So we, you know, we, we beef up with some more Afghan commanders just so we have some guns there. It's one o'clock in the morning and we start a movement into the orchard and probably about, you know, and slow deliberate. Clearing ops are slow. Like people, there's a difference between assaulting and clearance. A clearance op is slow and methodical because um, you can rush to failure really quickly and start hitting IEDs. So we get in the orchard and it's like five, 10 minutes. And all of a sudden I hear this, this, because it's, it's, it's pitch black. Obviously you have your nods on, but it's, but it's pitch black and it's deadly silent. And so it was this death defying pop. Fuck. So everybody hits the ground. It's like, is a sniper? What is it? And I'm up in the front with um, Bess Mula and Abe and Bess Mula is trying to, he's trying to get this fishing line off him. So, oh shit, man. So we look and Abe goes over to the wall and we had hit an IED, a tripwire IED that they had at chest level, but it low ordered. It didn't go off. The blasting cap went off, but the main charge didn't go off. So we're sitting there. We're like, holy shit, man. Okay. Oh. Yeah. So let's, <laughs> okay. The, the orchard's booby trapped. So we start moving forward a little bit more because you can't, you can't sit there and like, well, that was a close call. Let's head back boys. No. And so we turned that corner and I saw movement of the left side, you know, you know, looking to the left, I saw movement in the, in the, our objective compound. And then I saw this guy sprint in the open and jump behind a mud hut wall. It's like, Oh fuck. So guns come up. And the next thing I know, this burst of fire comes out of the mud hut wall. And it was like, you could reach out and, and touch the flames because you know you got nods on and yeah and all of a sudden the entire wall erupts with just flashes of fire 
And so we had, so they had initiated the ambush. They thought the tripwire IED was going to actually start the ambush off, but they initiated the ambush with a PKM and then the AKs started going. And so they had us in an L shape. And so the main, we were cut off from the main element. And so, you know, I'm <laughs> this PKM, it's my face is in the dirt and I'm firing back the best I can. And the guys are firing back and it's, it, it's a mess and there's no cover around us and, but they can't quite see us, but they can see I had an IR strobe on my helmet and the Taliban commander had nods. And so they can see my strobe and my strobe was bouncing off all the leaves. So they're trying to fire where they think I'm at. And our JTAC's like, Brian, they can see your light. They can see your light. And so I took the strobe off my helmet and I threw it as close to where the PKM was as I could. Perfect. and just and just and just started returning fire and um and we um so basically we were cut off and they were trying to get authorization to drop bombs but then i found out we're 20 meters from the pkm and so they can't drop because we're danger close and finally the ground force commander is like if you don't drop he's dead you have to drop and so they got the i think that was a two or three star approval for dropping like 20 meters isn't just danger close it's fucking danger close (laughs) so they dropped a 500 pounder 20 meters from us um on this pkm and i (laughs) so the jtac i remember he came over the radio i was like ryan we're dropping we're dropping we're dropping weapons release good luck bro he's like good luck (laughs) the fuck does that mean and so i just i i did i just put my face in the dirt and I remember when that when that bomb hit, I looked up and I just saw branches and, and debris and dirt flying all, it was just passing right over me. And so all of a sudden, I this fear comes over me, those chunks of mud hut, they're going to come down on top of us. And they don't come down in little pebble sizes. No, no, no. And man, I thought, but all of us were, we were all spared. And so we're trying to get up so we can move back to the main element and we're, you know, I mean, we're rocked and we're falling down like dead fish and, you know, just they're flapping fish and whatnot, trying to pull ourselves together and move back to the main element so we can hit the compound with another couple strikes. Cause there was a lot of dudes in there. So we finally get back to the main element and um, we hit it again. And I, I looked at the JTAC. I was like, dude, how big was that? And he's man, you just ate 500 pound bomb, bro. He goes, how do you feel? And I don't feel very good, but we didn't have time because that was only the first objective of an entire two village clearance. Yeah. So I pull, you know, we pull ourselves together. I pull myself together. It's like, all right, dude, no time to feel sorry for yourself. Um, we, we, we've got, we've got to finish up this clearance. And uh, we, we start our main, our main clearance, our, our main clearance of the village. And um, we didn't we didn't encounter any more resistance during the clearance of it. But like the area was so IED. I found 17 IEDs myself. Our Afghans found over 50. We ran out of C4 to where we were just using spray paint to mark the areas and like, nope, stay over here, stay over here. Well, we get to our limit of advance or our our, um, LOA. And um, it's like, okay, hey, look, men, weapons, equipment, then village is clear mission um, mission accomplished we're returning well um during this period of time uh one of the afghan commandos came up to me through a turp and said hey um 
there's there's like 15 to 20 people heading this way and i was like people men women or children who and he goes i don't know but i don't think they're women and children it's like well where are they at and he said they keep disappearing so we'll see them for a little while then they'll disappear well during this village clearance the tunnel systems were robust tunnels everywhere it's like shit well probably i don't know i mean a minute later um we're getting ready to pull back and the entire tree line just erupts and rpgs are flying over uh pkms on both sides that are doing cross-connecting fires um ak-47 just everything it just erupts it's three o'clock in the afternoon and the entire area that we're in it's one giant dust cloud from the amount of rounds that are hitting all around us so we do what we do and we you know get cover and try to return fire and we're trying to get air on station and the aircraft can't see where the fire's coming from oh, and then yes. once they can locate some of the fire they're like we we can't drop they're in your lines it's like well, what, what the fuck do you mean they're in our lines and we're fighting these dudes at you know five ten meters but it's 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 so close because of the um the way that this village is constructed they could be up on you and you you have no idea and so we're we're literally in a fist fight with not not a fist fight but we're literally um duking out with these dudes small arms and um and then you start to get those calls over the radio the the calls that just that just that tear your heart to shreds eagle down eagle down eagle down eagle down eagle down eagle down more more eagles down down and those are americans that are hit you don't know if they're dead you don't know if they're wounded you don't know what the situation is but you're hearing eagle down it's like fuck man and then you know you look up the little like where i was at in the ditch i could look up the road and you can see bodies on the road and it's like fuck those are our afghans right there so what we have to do at that point is we have to establish a casualty collection point or a ccp and then hopefully get our guys pulled back to a certain point to where we can start dropping bombs turn the tide of the battle against these dudes and um yeah, we we dedicated one CCP. We still don't have air on station. They still can't target. So they're doing the show of forces, flyover flares. And mm -hmm. so still can't target. But we set up one CCP and immediately, you know, we start bringing in wounded guys and we start taking fire on the CCP. So we have to move, adjust. Well, the Taliban had outflanked us. And so what they did was they created a separation that now it's like, okay, we can start dropping here. We see them here. They're moving through the trench line. You guys are 80 meters away. Weapons release. And so now bombs on target is a lot different psychological effect than a guy flying over shooting flares. Mm -hmm. And so now it's like, okay, now we're able, we established a new CCP. This one, we actually had a HLZ where we can start getting in helicopters and start getting the wounded and the dead out. So, um, battle goes on for hours and now it's like all right we we, we need to get out of here um men weapons and equipment you know the normal checks we go through we're not so worried about weapons and equipment right now but men we have to account for everybody all right we're missing we're missing four dudes okay who we have four afghans still missing fuck nobody gets left behind I don't care if you're Afghan, American, or anything. Nobody gets left behind. So it's like, okay, we have to go find these dudes. So we went back to um, the first CCP, and we found the body of one Afghan commander. Okay, we got three left, three more. One of the ditches that was near our second CCP found the body of a second Afghan commander. Okay, two left. 
One of them is Abe, my friend, the Afghan um, countermine guy, and another commando. It's like, where was the last time we saw these dudes? It's like 500 meters up the road where all this fire is coming from. Mm-hmm. Shit. <laughs> no one gets left behind. We know that. Doesn't matter who you are. No one gets left behind. So it's like, well, how are we going to get these dudes in our JTAC? He's like, well, I got an idea. We got two Apaches. So they're going to fly over and just start putting fire down on the road and everything around it. And we're going to use the Apaches as cover. And we're going to run up to where you think Abe was at last. And we're going to, and, and we're going to check it out and get him. It's like, all right. So, you know, there's always some arguments like, Hey man, that's dangerous, whatever. No one gets left behind. Apaches are inbound. Oh yeah. They're running low on fuel. We got to go. So they did, they started that, that cannon starts ripping and everyone, I, I remember jumping out of the ditch and I was like, Oh leg, please hold up, baby. I need you to give me this one. And we sprint down the road to the place where we first got engaged. And I looked in the ditch and, you know, Abe was in the ditch dead. And, um, oh, yeah. and then the commando was right next to him. He was dead too. So, um, body recovery is, is hard, especially when, uh, the, I mean, a blood-soaked body is very, very hard to get a hold on. And when rounds are coming in, you don't have a lot of time. So you're grabbing anything you can. And I remember pulling him out and I got his blood all in my mouth. And I was just like, damn, yeah, that'll stick with me forever. But finally get him out. We get him and the commando back. We're up on men. Nobody got left behind. We, we follow through with what we, our Western beliefs are and that nobody gets left behind. And, um, and I know people can argue it all they want. Oh, well, what about this and this? I, I don't give a fuck. You have your own arguments. I have my beliefs. Nobody gets left behind. And every time I had control over it, I brought everybody back. So we had, we were up on men. All right. And so, yeah, the, uh, you know, Abe took his last flight. Um, I was with him for four deployments. He took his, or I'm sorry, uh, three deployments. He took his last flight and, um, that was it. We, we had everybody. And so at the end of, end of the fight, we had, um, uh, eight Afghans, um, KIA, 12 Afghans, WIA and four Americans, WIA. So we, uh, <laughs> we hit a, we hit a hornet's nest and I, and I caught the dragon and my trips back in 17 and 18 and 2021 was all trying to just keep catching the dragon because it's, it's so addicting, but it's that camaraderie in combat it's you learn so much about yourself um when the bullets are flying and unfortunately you know the the perfect storm has to be there people have to be getting hurt people have to be dying and and you do you learn you you learn a lot about yourself and it's not that you want that to happen i'm not saying that at all but inevitably that's going to happen and so you want to be a part of it because you want to be there with your brothers in arms and, and, and you do, you want to either be fighting to the death or, um, or slinging it out with them and, and making sure that they can get home. Um, it, it's hard to explain. I know you understand, but it's, it's very hard to explain kind of. I think you've articulated I, it though really well. Yeah. So, but, but yeah, it's, it, it's just always, <laughs> it's always chasing the dragon. And, and then once you catch it, it's, it's like, damn, man, you just want more. So yeah. yeah. So what are you what are you doing now? What's the plan now? So 
now I'm, I'm just, I, I promote the book best I can. Um, but really now I, I government contract and I'm pretty much just trying to figure out what I want to do when I grow up. Cause I really, I don't know. I've been, okay. I've been associated with the government since I was 18 years old. Um, very, very happy with, you know, my time, um, working with the DOD and everything like that. But now it's like, I mean, what do I want to do when I grow up? And it's like, I, I don't know. So okay, figuring that out, have... figuring out who, who Ryan Hendrickson is, you know? Well, I mean, if any of our listeners get a moment, um, even have a moment that you've given us of vulnerability and understanding, you know, it's, it's worth it. You're, you're taking the time now to educate people in a way mm-hmm. through your experiences that they would never have, uh, never been privy to, never have had that opportunity to maybe understand somebody else who's been through something. You articulate it really well and you, you did a great job of that. Um, and I think that you're only going to continue to do that, not only for the community and for the brothers and sisters in arms, but for those people who have been through it, but you're, you're giving an insight um, by putting your story on the line for critique or criticism or, you know, opinions, but you're putting it out there. You're making yourself incredibly, incredibly, incredibly vulnerable mm-hmm. for the benefit of others, for yourself, of course, but that's a, that's a healing. That's a, that's cathartic. The writing is a, a form of therapy. It's a form of mm-hmm. understanding in a way for you. We've talked about this. It's a form of understanding and and helping you move through things. Um, so I think that you're only going to continue to do incredible things. I think that your book's only going to continue to help a lot of people and, and give people hopefully a small, even if it's a 1% more understanding mm-hmm. of, of veterans who have been through some serious shit and, you know, from guys like you. And I think your stories are, they're important in our history. And uh, I'm glad that people are speaking out about their deployments. I'm glad that people are talking about the hard things because I'm hopeful that we'll learn. I'm hopeful that we won't have to go through more and more of these wars to learn the toll that it takes and, and what it does to human beings. I'm, I'm optimistic yeah. because we don't have books from World War II like we have from soldiers like we have now. Mm-hmm. It, no one spoke the way people speak now. But it takes, yeah. it takes somebody who's, who's got not only the balls, but the, the reality is people are going to critique, people are going to talk, people are going to read, they're going to question, they're going to they're gonna say, you didn't, you did, you were here, you weren't. They're always going to have something to say about your life and your story. Yeah. And um, being willing to put that out there is, uh, it takes a lot. And I'm, I'm really grateful, Ryan, that you did that. Yeah, I think, I think my biggest message to veterans and to, um, to anybody that, you know, that's going you know, that, that is in those dark places is, you know, I'm, 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 I'm definitely not the, I, I guess, I, I guess you can say it's like, I'm not this, this strange veteran that's like, oh yeah, I'm going to write this book. No, I'm I, I am exactly opposite of that. My, the book wasn't actually supposed to be a book. It was a journal. It was writing therapy that, that turned into a book, but I do remember um, in Bamsey and there was some times in my life when I, I could have easily been a part of the 22 um, a day just because I, I, I didn't know how to handle the, 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 what, what comes, you know, the mental minefield that comes with some of the experiences we're going to have and people try. And I, I think the biggest, one of the biggest mistakes veterans make is 
they try to avoid it completely. It's like, nope, I don't ever want to think about this. This is not, nope. How do I make this never have happened? And the, and the fact of the matter is, is you can't ever undo what happened. You will never unsee what you saw. You will never um, uh, um, be able to um, undo the feelings and the emotions and, 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 and the fear and, and, and just the outright, just being fucking scared and vulnerable um, to another person's will. And, and with mine, it was the Taliban. Um, but you'll never be able to undo that. And people try to, to hide that or make it like something that never happened, but that's impossible. And what we need to figure out is, how do I not become a victim of this? How do I understand that this happened? I got it. This happened. But now I need to learn to be a good human being or learn to be a productive human being with this a part of my life, because you can never undo this. This will always be a part of you. And in the harder you try to undo it, the, the, the faster you push people away, the more miserable you are until you get to a certain point to where you're like, fuck it, nobody's ever going to understand. And you, unfortunately, what is very common right now is you take your own life. Um, and so instead of trying to make something never have happened, it's how do I deal with what has happened? How do I use this? And in my case, I want to use my experiences, although they're not as bad as so many people out there, but I want to use my experiences to maybe help somebody because as selfish as this sounds, it makes me feel good when I get to, to help somebody. And it is that it's a little bit selfish because I no, do, that's okay. myself. but some selfishness is good. Sometimes you need to focus on yourself and, and, by people, and then another pitfall that a lot of veterans fall into, and I see this with um, civilians too, is, well, I didn't go through anything like you did, so I don't have the right, I'm so angry that I even feel this way. It doesn't matter. You have. You don't have to be in Iraq or Afghanistan to feel pain, sorrow, hurt, despair, depression, fear. You don't have, it doesn't have to be Afghanistan or Iraq. My story just so happened to happen in Afghanistan, but that's just a circumstance of um, location. Right. It like think there are all of those emotions I just talked about that that um, that hurt people um, deeply. They don't. It it's not a war. That's not a war thing. That's a life thing. So people, right. not only do you need to understand that um, what had happened to you is going to always be there. You can't undo it. But a lot of people need to quit trying to belittle those emotions. Like oh, I shouldn't feel this way. I'm such a fill in all the blanks because I feel this way. That guy, he has a right to feel this way. I don't like, you need to understand <laughs> you have the right as a human being to feel the way that you feel and to address it. Because the more that you try to push it away, the more, um, the, the, the uglier you become, right. You have to address it. You have to, you, you, you have to understand like, this isn't a war thing. Emotions don't give a fuck about bullets and IEDs and stuff like that. Emotions and pain and fear and all that stuff. That's a, that's a human being thing. And you have to be able to address that and not put yourself on a pedestal that, well, I don't have the right to feel this. Basically, you're feeling sorry for yourself. I don't have the right to feel this way because I didn't go through all this. Yes, you do. And you have the right to address it and to make yourself better. And oh, by the way, maybe help somebody else out to help them through your experience. And so those those are those are a couple of things that I, I I do like to talk about because I do see them as a very dangerous pitfalls, very dangerous pitfalls. And the last one, a lot of veterans don't like to hear, but it's the truth. 
And it's remembering where you came from. Just because you went through this or you saw this or you were a part of this doesn't mean you're any better than anybody else. So a very so part of healing is understanding that you are part of something. You are not the something. Nobody owes you a thing and you're not entitled to anything because of X, Y, and Z. So you need to use that experience and quit and, and quit thinking that you're owed something and start to help somebody. Start to make that experience. Maybe, you know, take your experience and if it reaches one person, one person, then your experience was worth it. What you went through, the pain you went through, the suffering you went through, everything you went through, as bad as it sounds, was worth it because you probably just saved him or her. And so that's, yeah, and that it's 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 the big picture of things, and it's very hard. Why do I know all this? Because I went through it. It's very hard to look at the big picture. It really is. But that the big you have to see the big picture in order to properly heal, right. and to properly think through um, the second and the third order of effects about those emotions that you have. Because if you don't, then you you could be a part of the twenty two a day very quickly. Yeah. And it and it sneaks up on you fast as fuck. I I, I can promise you that because I've been there. <laughs> mm-hmm. I've been it there. Does. And it's, yep. it's, it's something sometimes you can't catch uh, until it's there. And we want to prevent that. That's the whole point of shows like this and us having these conversations and, and you and you giving as much as you just gave to my listeners emotionally and mentally. I want you to know it doesn't fall on deaf ears. I want you to know it doesn't, um, it's appreciated. I want, I want you to know we understand the, the weight and the toll it takes on you to sit here and have these conversations. And um, I know my listeners appreciate it. I know I appreciate it. I know you you broke me in a way that no one has yet. So uh, I guess thanks or not, or Dick, <laughs> I don't know. One, one of, one of those. It's, it's all healing. You've been, you, you've yeah. been through some traumatic in, instances in your life and it, nobody will ever be able to say, I know what you're going through, but I have an idea. And my right. idea of what you've been through, it struck a chord with you because you're a human being and right, you're a exactly. human being that, that has, you know, feelings and, and, and emotions and everything the same way, same way everybody else does. We can go down some rabbit holes to where it would really bother me, but I don't want, I, I'm going to avoid yeah. those rabbit holes. That's so. not, but that's not productive for you or anyone else though, right yeah. now. Right. And maybe one day you and I'll go down those when, when, when you get to a point of healing in those and, and the door is always yeah. open for you to come back on and have this discussion. So please know that Ryan, um, where do people find you? Where do they buy this book? So, um, crap, where do people find me? Oh yeah. Um, social media. Yeah. Instagram. Yeah. The, uh, what's your handle? uh, What is it? We'll put it in the bio either way. That's okay. Hey, I'll, I'll sort you out. I'm pretty sure. Tip of the spear or something or another. I just don't remember what it's. (laughs) it's, So if you type in Ryan Hendrickson, he'll pop up. But if you also type in tip of the spear, RMH. Yep. To the spear RMH. And then, um, I think the easiest place for the book, I mean, Amazon's pretty easy. Okay. Um, just tip the spear, Ryan Hendrickson or else, um, um, I got a website that's Ryan Hendrickson. I think it's Ryan M Hendrickson.com. Let's double check. Cause I just pulled up your profile to make sure Ryan M Hendrickson.com. Yes. Yeah. I probably need to learn this stuff. I That's think. okay. 
we'll put it all in the bio. So don't worry. Everyone will know exactly where to go get the book and follow you and, and do all those lovely things. But, um, nice. but Ryan, we, we got to jump, but I just wanted to say thank you again for the time, for coming on, for being vulnerable, for doing the work and for, for caring about yourself enough to know that you're worth doing the work. And so I appreciate your time, my friend. And I appreciate everything you're doing. You're doing a lot. A lot of We're people trying. listen to these and they heal. So thank you. Thank you. I appreciate those kind words. You stick with me. Everyone else, we will see you all next week.